Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning to everyone. This is a very impromptu uh, show, I cobbled together, um, and it has a number of elements in it. Number one, um, I belong to an organization, proud to belong to an organization, uh, ISEPP, and one of its members uh, sends out a large number of articles that are germane to the mental health movement and... and, um, uh, on a variety of other health issues. Uh, and one of them was an interview in Scientific American by a philosopher of mind uh, named Peter Carruthers that really caught my attention. Uh, and afterwards, uh, because I am struggling with the very issue of the nature of mind and the mind-body problem, uh, which is philosophically uh, a not that needs to be untangled um, uh, uh, before we can all think clearly about the problems that uh, people suffer uh, and and, and how to deal with them um, really caught my imagination. And I decided uh, to write a note to the ISEPP um, uh, website. And one of the people who responded was uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Al Galves. Uh, who is, who and I, uh, uh, who and I are totally on the same page uh, as to the mischief of uh, scientific uh, falsehoods of diagnosis and that the way to understand human behavior and human beings is through a phenomenological approach to talk about with people the experience of their life and doing so in a way that doesn't judge it and opens it up to their insights and to ours uh, in order to change the kind of stories and conclusions that people live with. But there was a word um, that he used, a sentence that he used, that is very common and stimulated uh, a piece of this discussion, and that was, that phenomenologically we can begin to, because we have a phenomenological approach, we could understand the nature of mind. And I wanted to expand on that as well. So let me talk a little bit about uh, the Carruthers article. Uh, Carruthers is part of a group, a large group of philosophers and scientists who ask the question, uh, what is the nature of the underlying processes, brain processes, chemical processes that produce consciousness. And then what is the nature of consciousness? This is a very powerful movement. Um, It is tied to uh, and and becomes part of 
trying to uh, use computers and create artificial intelligence uh, to mimic human mental capacities. In other words, um, can we create a machine that will think and feel emotionally the same as a human being? And I've talked about this on the air before. I think that until we really think about the consequences of this uh, and, and the fact that we are now producing machines that create unemployment among those uh, uh, members of society, those members who work with their hands, uh, who are working class people and are being put out of work by machines who work faster, cheaper, and better with fewer complaints than they will. This has to be discussed as a critical issue, but that's another story, not here. What Carruthers says in an article is that most of mental, our mental processes, uh, we're not, we're not conscious, we can't become conscious of them. And that is uh, what I think is completely true. When I become aware I'm hungry or tired, there has been an enormous amount of internal processing that has gone into that, the creation of that awareness, that piece of consciousness that I don't know about and wouldn't want to know about. Let me, let me try to clarify this. If any of you who are listening to this press down on a desk or a piece of furniture in front of you, you feel, you experience the feeling under your finger of the desk. You feel the pressure, right? That's what you're aware of. That's what we're conscious of. But the processing, the neurological and biochemical mechanisms by which that takes place is out of our awareness. And we don't know at this point, with all of our knowledge, how come the interpretation of what I'm pressing on is felt at my finger when it's taking place three feet away in my brain? That is a wonderful question to try and answer. And that is a question that people are trying to answer with computer simulation and all kinds of other studies. And I think it's worthwhile. I agree with the philosopher Thomas Nagel, who has written extensively on this topic. And he said that the point at which human beings can fully understand the mechanism by which neurological substrate produces conscious experience, it will cause a revolution in physics that will change all of our sciences and everything we know. And God help us if we use that knowledge as badly as we have used so much of the results of science, which on one hand uh, make our lives easier and better, and on the other hand uh, are creating situations in which we're facing literally the destruction of our planet. So that's the question he's dealing with. I was critical in my post of Carruthers because to me, he is using the tail to wag the dog. 
there's a relationship between what we call mind and what we call body. We come into the world equipped with basic neurological circuitry, a brain that is modulized, in which certain innate responses to danger, to hunger, to, to our survival are already there. They develop as we experience the world. So that studying the brain without first studying experience makes no sense. It's ass backwards. Okay? If we sit and talk to somebody about their experience, we could then ask, how did the development of the responses that they now have to life come about through the modification of these modules in the brain? The behavior is explained and discussed by human beings in terms of feelings and thoughts, conscious experience. We have no access to the brain and what the brain is doing. We can study the brain and we see where in the brain, for example, uh, uh, sadness is produced, the, the, the experience of sadness or hunger or fear. But the study has to start with the hunger, the fear, and the sadness, not with the neurological components and the body that produces or allows that experience to, to uh, occur. And if we were conscious of what our brain was doing to create consciousness, we wouldn't be conscious of what we're conscious of when we're living in a real world and experiencing real people and real objects. When, when surgeons want to uh, cut a piece of the brain, remove a tumor, they carefully stimulate the area around the brain and they see what results experientially when they do so. And so what you have is an, a long, tedious process of somebody having their brain electrically stimulated around the area that is to be removed or extirpated. What's so wonderful is that they don't feel the stimulation itself. They don't feel the brain being stimulated. But if it's done in the temporal lobe, they will hear music. Or they'll say, I hear somebody speaking. Uh, when, the, when, when, when these surgeons uh, will stimulate around a speech center, they want to be completely careful not to remove the tumor along with an individual's capacity to either understand, consciously understand the words of other people or express them. And the basis of going ahead with a surgery will be made on what kind of damage to experiential functioning might occur if the surgery is to take place. Might saving the person from the tumor create such damage to their conscious experience of self and, and the world that it's simply not worth going ahead with this. So that's part of, of this whole discussion. And I am completely with those scientists whose interest 
is not the phenomenology and the phenomenological experience of life uh, that occupies my friend Al and I and many, many other psychologists, many. But whose interest is that? How does, what is the relationship between experience consciously and the underlying neurological material and models that allow the consciousness to exist, making clear that if I am talking to my friends, I can't have a conscious experience of talking to my friends unless there's a friend to talk to, that our phenomenological, our awareness is about the world. It's directed outward. And it requires not only a brain, but eyes and motor responses and an entire body interacting with another individual who is similarly constructed. And whenever we don't pay attention to these underlying what are really philosophical or philosophical scientific issues, we get into all kinds of difficulty and we all touch of trouble, as I'll speak in a moment about psychiatric diagnosis, particularly my, one of my hated diagnoses, PTSD. So we come equipped biologically to have certain innate responses that relate to survival. Among these is an innate capacity, as we learn about the world, to have a panic response. Anxiety and panic, they all can be very troublesome, but they're there, you see, in order to uh, help us survive. So if we're in a situation where there's information that we need, but we don't know specifically that information, we have anxiety. Something moves in a bush. Hunters and gatherers are around the bush. What's in that bush could be lunch or something that can make one of them or all of them lunch. The anxiety focuses attention. Or if a lion does jump out, of the, of the uh, 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 thing to make somebody lunch, there is a panic response which mobilizes any and all action to either fight and destroy the animal or get the hell out of there as fast as possible. So adaptive responses can be very uncomfortable, but when they are understood to be adaptive responses, uh, it, it clears the air and helps us understand the nature of some of these very difficult, uh, painful emotional responses. And I think that this is true of guilt, of shame. Not only do we come equipped to learn how to survive and the proper way to survive, but we come equipped with moral and a moral underpinning. Why? Because our species cannot survive without cooperation and loyalty to and from other human beings. And this creates another whole aspect that we need to understand about ourselves. Uh, the, the Dawkins uh, uh, selfish theory, gene theory is important here. 
to understand. We love our children because their survival is the survival of us and our species. We love other people's children to the degree that their genes and our genes match up. So that we love our nieces and nephews, not quite as much as our children. But the survival of the gene pool is something built in to our responses. But on a conscious level, we don't say, I want my my genes to survive, we want to say the child and the children that we love should survive. It is important to us on the conscious level that that take place. And thus, we also feel a, a response, a moral response, to be kind and giving to the others in our tribe, upon whom we depend for survival. And there's all kinds of delicious conflicts that occur, for example, that I explore in my book. How can I still feel like a moral human being if I eat and I let my neighbor go hungry? What kind of person am I from a moral point of view? Well, I'm not going to really go into that here, but that really can be seen in terms of the moral hierarchies we create in which we see those above us as better than us, inherently better, and those below us as inferior, requiring, needing, and deserving less than we deserve. The, the defense mechanisms of a dehumanization and demonization are everywhere, especially in hierarchical, authoritarian, and totalitarian systems. So, let's hold on to that idea, and I want to go forward with this. We are inherently moral, and every act that we engage in has a survival component, either for us, or for our family, or for others, and a moral component that to do so, to help others, is a moral imperative and represents some of the highest morality in which we can engage. So, let's now talk about mind-body and the nature of mind from the aspect of this discussion. The problem we create when we say, I have a mind, and we can understand our mind, is twofold. Number one, there is no mind as an object Mind should not be expressed as a noun. I have a dog. I don't have a dog, but this is an example. I have a dog. I lost my dog. Perfectly okay. I have a mind. I lost my mind. Not so good. Mind is what the body does. Process. Therefore, we have a body that minds not a body and a mind. That's the dualism that philosophers and scientists have been struggling with all through the development of human intellectual consciousness. Descartes said we have a mind and a body. Mind replaced we have a soul and a body. 
The soul, and this for many religious people, is somehow detachable and exists of different stuff and continues to exist after the body dies and becomes corrupted. In one way or another, many, many religions have built into it this notion of the life continues, the conscious life will continue for us uh, because the mind is somehow a thing that can be detached from the body. But the newer kinds of thought we have about this is that mind is process and that most of what we consider mind as process is outside of consciousness. It's there to support and create consciousness and the decisions that have to be made. That hurts our ego. It runs up against a lot of deeply held religious beliefs. No one is a bigger villain for many people who are deeply religious than Charles Darwin. We are just another animal seeking to survive, but an animal who out of expediency has to be moral because we can't survive unless we morally take care of, and that's how we experience it consciously, our neighbor and our neighbor's children and the other members of the tribe or the group. In this case, I'm talking about the nation that depends, uh, 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 whose survival, our own survival and our own moral worth depends upon. Okay, let me catch my breath. I like Carruthers' article, but he starts with the issue of the brain and consciousness rather than the consciousness that then has to lead the study of the brain and how it produces consciousness. What happens to us is not only that we react to the world, but as we grow, we make predictions and we respond. And our responses become built in. There's a great deal of study now to show, neurological brain scanning, that show that when we come, become aware of a decision, we've already made the decision and actually have begun acting upon it. And this leads to all kinds of philosophical back and forth about whether we're ever responsible for our actions. And I'm not going to touch that because we experience ourselves as real and we can neither be moral nor what we are as human beings unless we accept that we're not only responsible, but when we're not responsible, we can be helped or make ourselves more responsible that the skills we need to have a successful life can be grown, they can be developed. None of us as adults are totally helpless babies because if we were, we wouldn't have any survival at all and there would be no sense of morality at so whatsoever. So that we're not aware of most of what we call mind and that's what Carruthers, I think, correct decision uh, 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 states. We're not aware of most of what went into our reaction. Uh, I want to talk then about PTSD. Change the direction of the conversation a little bit. What we're talking about, most of the people with PTSD, the symptoms of being unable to forget about 
what is called trauma, reliving incidents over and over again, uh, uh, are very powerful and very difficult uh, for the individual experiencing them, and certainly for family and society who would like this individual to be able to live the life uh, they would have had before the events of what we call trauma took place. Uh, if you read the DSM, uh, any really terrible event that created a, an impending sense of disaster and doom could create a source, a problem of, of uh, what we call PTSD. The symptoms, the so-called symptoms, because they're not symptoms. Uh, most of the individuals diagnosed with PTSD are individuals who have experienced warfare. And I want to be very careful when I talk about warfare that I don't fall into a trap and talk about uh, whose war is right and whose war is wrong. But war has been one of the mainstays, main activities of human beings ever since. We, we, we crawled out of the ooze, got up on our hind feet, and realized that maybe there wasn't enough water for our tribe and the tribe that was trying to drink from the same water hole. It's not that war may not be necessary, I reason. It might not be. It might be. Uh, I think World War II was necessary. But not all war is necessary. But what we have done as human beings, because we both describe the world and have an innate moral sense, is that we have made war and those who fight it virtuous. The highest level of virtue can be when an individual defends his tribe, his country, his family. But once we make the killing of human beings a virtue, in most senses, it's usually a crime, a heinous crime to kill another human being. But once we have done that, we have unleashed the possibility that war will become endless because to grow up and want to be a virtuous being, a hero, is a very powerful way of making life meaningful and guaranteeing a, a, a status in one's society and tribe and life. And I think this is what we have done as human beings. And I think this is what ultimately may undo us as a species. The ease in which we send ourselves and our children off to the next war and the next war and the next war, the ease in which we morally justify killing and being killed. And this, to me, transcends politics, but a study of history shows that in the 5,200 years or so of written history, virtually none of it is about peace. It's about war. And apparently, some people have defined peace as the necessary time it takes to fight the next war. But now what happens in war? 
Young people, mostly men, but now women, run into battle. And battle today is industrial age slaughter. This is no longer a line of soldiers lining up with swords against another line of soldiers and duking it out. This is now mass killing in which the enemy can be killed and you don't even see them. You don't even know who or what they are. And in my work over the years, especially after Vietnam, which was problematic for many of us as a war, the young men who came home had watched this slaughter, had been involved in this slaughter, came home with missing limbs, had killed other human beings. And two things were true about that war. Many of those they killed were seen as human. They hadn't been successfully dehumanized enough. Uh, there was a wonderful show years ago uh, on PBS showing the kind of indoctrination that European countries went, uh, did before the run-up to World War I. A horrendous, horrendous piece of mass destruction. Pictures in England and France showed the Germans as the Hun. Monsters holding babies on a bayonet about to eat them. This arouses a passion, a hatred, that can send people into a frenzy to kill such enemies. This runs up against every war. Suddenly, if somebody kills another human being, because they are innately human, there is a profound disturbance that it causes because they are moral and understand that the taking of a life is something that should not happen. It's built in. Even when there's survival and the survival is justified, it's still a problem. I worked over the years with a number of policemen who had killed perpetrators, drug addicts, dangerous people on the street who were never the same. Even though they had been debriefed and the killing was seen as a justifiable homicide, they were not the same. They weren't sick. They had been transformed by an action in which they could no longer see themselves as the, or the world as the same place as it was before they had committed this killing. And the young men I saw after Vietnam had a second problem. Many of them came home disillusioned with the war itself. As a number of them said, which we then learned when, 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 when uh, uh, Ken Burns did his incredible film uh, series on the war. American leaders knew that the war wasn't being won, but still kept pushing the war and saying it was being won. Many of the soldiers on the ground knew this was a lie, which created serious moral and, and survival conflicts. If this war is not justified... If I'm killing 
and it's not necessary. And therefore, I can't see it as moral. What am I fighting and dying for? Who am I killing and why am I doing that? And I want to give one example of this, of a young man I worked with for several years who came home from Vietnam and described the experience there and the world as it now appeared to him that was such a difficult place for him to live in. He had been a side gunner on a helicopter gunship. And the job of the helicopter gun, gunner was to fire on villages that suspected Viet Cong, the enemy, or North Koreans were hiding in. Sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't. But he said, you had to understand what it was like to fire these machine guns down on a village where there were people and animals and houses. There was now a flat surface covered by a pink goo. Everything was destroyed. The guilty, the innocent, the enemy, non-enemies. As the war went on, and he did this, the sick feeling that he and more and more of the young men being such mass killers of other human beings and not being able to justify it led to a tremendous sorrow, a tremendous anger against the self and an anger against those who were sending them into war. We don't know how many uh, lieutenants and sergeants leading their men into battle were killed by friendly fire. It was hushed up when we discovered this might be going on. But when they got back, the only relief they could find, because they couldn't talk about it, there was no one to share this with. You certainly couldn't share it with your superiors. Uh, nobody wanted to hear these emotions and feelings. They got stoned. And they stayed stoned. When they came home, these men were then horribly called baby killers. They were told that they were guilty of a crime. Rather than what we do today, which is call them heroes, that they justifiably did something wonderful to save their country. These young men felt that they were baby killers. They felt guilty. They felt ashamed. This young man now told me of the, the, the critical issue that broke him as a person. He was so stoned one day he couldn't go out on his helicopter to do another round of, of, of uh, uh, shooting down at some village or individuals. His friend took it and the friend was killed. The helicopter was hit by a rocket and all on it were killed. And he said, I don't know how to live with myself. Who is there to forgive me? What did I do? Why did I do it? And this is diagnosed as a disorder. I'm sorry, it's not a disorder. It's an individual struggling to find meaning in life after an act that took all the meaning and joy and morality out of his life. As a therapist, I never tell anybody, because I try not to diagnose them, which I recognize, are basically moral judgments posing as a medical issue. 
But I can't forgive either. Who is to forgive? The story has an interesting happy ending because I sort of understood something. I didn't judge him, but he experienced himself as being understood. And he could then reframe within a framework of understanding what he had done and why he had done it. And while he could not fully lift the, the moral pull he felt, he understood it in a different way. And he could then begin to forgive himself or at least come to a state in which he accepted what he had done, why he had done it, and go on and try to create a life that was counter to the one that had been taken from him psychologically and morally by that war and by the acts he did in it. Maybe we will find a way to stop war before we do ourselves in with it. There's now a beginning of a race for more countries to have atomic bombs Individuals who run these countries have a wonderful capacity, better than our own leaders sometimes, not always, but sometimes, to dehumanize and demonize their enemies. Maybe. I don't know. I hope so. I hope so. Um, but any event, this is a terrible diagnosis. What it says to somebody is you're sick because of guilt rage, fear, revulsion. And the cure is to take something that prevents the brain from feeling the emotions, shutting them down. Shutting down, I say, the best and moral part of us as human beings. That's what I believe. This young man left... Uh, uh, my care, my, my interaction. We left as uh, with all of the best relationships I had with people I called patients and some of the very best relationships I ever had as a human being were with individuals who started out being called patients but uh, with which we developed a relationship and most of people who do psychotherapy I think will attest to exactly what I'm saying there is getting to know someone and in the process getting to know yourself uh, that is wonderful, that is life-enhancing, that increases insight and the phenomenological experience of, world, of the world in a way that's wholly positive and freeing. Um, I'm sorry I don't do therapy anymore, but it's simply beyond me and my ability to have a job in which I can do that. Uh, but that'll be okay. So I'm finished. Uh, my family is down here, and I think my wife must be properly angry at me that I did this broadcast now because it keeps me from joining my uh, daughter and my uh, granddaughter and grandson and son-in-law in another sparkling day of having fun. So... Uh, anybody who would like to respond, uh, and this in ISEPP, send me a note if you want to discuss this, and I will put a, create a list of those who would want to and 
do another podcast and do another podcast uh, as to the nature of, you know, create another discussion because I think this is, for me, interesting, but also vital. Uh, I didn't see anybody else call in. I didn't expect that. I did this impromptu, not enough of a, uh, 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 an advance notice. So I'm going to end my episode and see what is expected of me. Take care. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.